We always talk about the importance of recovery after our training runs. One of the products that we love to use to help with our recovery are our Lily Trotters compression socks. What do compression socks do? Compression socks can help reduce swelling, improve circulation, and reduce muscle soreness in your feet and legs. So we put them on after our long runs, after our hard workouts, or just when we're feeling like we need that little extra bit of recovery. Check out the stylish line Lily Trotters at www.lilytrotters, that's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S dot com. And you can use the code RFF20 for a discount. While we pay a lot of attention to the shoes that we wear during our runs, what we put on our feet after our runs is just as important. That's why we love UFO's recovery shoes. As a recovery product, UFOs absorb 37% more impact than traditional footwear, which helps your feet, your ankles, your hips, and lower back recover faster. So while slipping into your favorite pair of UFOs after a hard workout gives you that ooh and ah feeling, you can wear them all day long. We wear ours around the house, while working from home at our stand-up desk, or even out and about running errands. Check out the UFOs line at www.ufos.com. We love sharing tips about our favorite running gear with our podcast listeners. One of our favorite running items for as long as we've both been running are our spy belts. Our spy belts, small personal instrument belts, are perfect for carrying anything small with you on your run. That could be your nutrition, your phone, your keys. The best part is that they don't chafe and they don't bounce around. So you don't have to worry while you're on your run. Check out Spy Belt at spyspibelt.com. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you today on this hot day in June? I was going to say sweaty. It's like we're in now. We we got lucky and we had kind of a, remember, we had a cool end of our May. Like It was really cold, actually. I just um, noticed that in the laundry I just did, I had some like leggings and long sleeve uh, you know, running shirts. So within the last, you know, maybe week or whenever was I last did the laundry, which may, may have been like a week and a half by now, but, um, but we got thrown into the, the throes of summer pretty quickly and, and we're, um, feeling it ourselves and our runners are, we're hearing this happens every year. It's like the first really hot human week we hear from everybody that they're struggling. And, uh, we've been hearing it a lot this week and we've been emphasizing, like we do every summer, uh, the importance of, listening to your body and and rate of perceived exertion during this acclimation period and even we say that acclimation period but even once we're acclimated to the heat our bodies cannot perform uh to their potential in in heat and humidity and high dew points in particular which is what we're having a lot of this week the temperature isn't so high necessarily but the dew point is high so the relative humidity is high and that's how we're feeling it so even once we acclimate it'll feel a little we'll, we'll get used to it a little more our bodies make physiological adaptations which we keep telling our runners too every workout you do in this heat is like it's sort of um you know like altitude training it, it's it's triggering physiological adaptations that will improve your fitness, even if you don't feel it or see it until the weather cools down again. Absolutely. So I like your point about rate of perceived exertion. I think sometimes runners get caught up in data and I know there's a lot of pace calculators out there and they're very relevant, but they're most relevant for racing. And that's because our training paces always, regardless of the weather, need to be 
by effort. We talk about this a lot. An easy pace isn't necessarily a pace range that has been predetermined, but rather a pace on that day based on how you feel, based on the weather conditions, based on how much you've slept or how little you've slept or the stress or your recovery rate that conversational pace may differ from day to day. So if we use, for example, a heat pace calculator, and there's many out there, I really like to use the one that was put out by Runners Connect a few years ago. And we use that as a reference when we create race plans for our runners, when we see that the weather for the race is going to be ungodly hot and we realize they can't run their projected race pace, we'll give some suggestions on um, a generally the ballpark pace they should be running. But in terms of just training, Run by what you feel is your conversational pace on a high dew point day. Don't worry about the, the pace calculators because everybody responds to heat and humidity differently. Lisa, you and I have talked about this before. We feel pretty fortunate, even though we definitely slow down in the heat and humidity. We don't mind it as much. Our bodies uh, are able to be somewhat efficient and somewhat responsive to the heat once we acclimate. But I mean, I'm still significantly slower. I don't care. I know that I'm getting the benefits of my training, but I really try not to get too caught up in numbers. And we encourage um, anyone who's acclimating, even beyond acclimation, when you're already used to heat and humidity by July, don't worry about your pace. Just know that you're getting the benefits of your training by running at conversational pace. And um, it's totally okay if you're if you're going a little slower and slogging along you're still getting that endurance and those benefits for the fall. Yeah, absolutely. And just a reminder too, the um, bring water. Um, I stocked up on salt stick um, fast shoes, which I pop a couple of those before I go out for a run and, um, and try to run when it's, when it's early, you know, before the sun comes up or as the sun's coming up before the sun gets too high in the sky, dew point tends to be a little higher in the morning. So it's a little more humid, but um, you get more shade uh, if you can't get out first thing in the morning and it gets dangerously hot later in the day, uh, you know, really, if you can get on a treadmill um, or you push your run to the next morning, uh, it, it's going to be better than trying to get out in, in dangerous heat and just keep an eye out for, you know, we posted on our social media this week, signs of heat exhaustion, signs of heat stroke. Um, they're real and, and they're dangerous. So um, electrolytes, hydration, trying to get out in the cooler parts of the day, finding routes that are a little bit more shady. Um, all things that just part of summer running, especially especially in the DMV where we get a lot of humid, humid hot days. For sure. So we are actually going to launch into our coaching episode this week. We do not have a guest this week, and that's because we know that so many runners are starting up their fall marathon training cycles. We thought this would be a great week to kind of talk about some lessons that we've learned from our marathon experiences. This is marathon focused this week and it's specifically Boston marathon focused, but we promise you these tips can be are relevant for any runner um, for, who is training for any race distance or even just training in general. But because we are a Boston marathon podcast and because the Boston marathon is almost exactly four months away, we thought we would take the time this week to dive in and talk about the lessons that we've learned from our 27 collective Boston Marathon experiences. This is going to focus on Boston Marathon training, not race execution yet. That's for another episode. So we're going to try and get through these. And if not, we may be doing a part two because we've listed a lot of our the lessons that we've learned from our 27 collective Boston Marathon. So Lisa, why don't you go first with the first lesson? 
Uh, yeah, so you may hear Buster in the background. Buster's, Buster's, uh, Buster has something to say about this too. But uh, our first is really um, taking a look at what your goals are for for your marathon. And again, we're you know specific to Boston. So for many people, especially if it's your first Boston marathon, your goal may just be to go and enjoy the experience. And we would personally I think really highly recommend that. If you've qualified already, you've you've achieved that big goal, that big bucket list item, and you're headed to Boston, uh, the Boston experience is is itself the most rewarding part of running Boston. Really, your finish time at Boston is not something that you're going to remember. I think the two of us probably can't remember most years of what our Boston finish times were, but we remember the experience. So, um, so if that's your goal, that is going to kind of dictate what your training looks like. Maybe you do want a, another qualifying time. What What is your, you know, set goals that are realistic. So again, looking at what is your goal and what does your last year look like? Are you returning from injury, um, maybe pregnancy, a COVID hiatus? What is What does it look like? What does your base look like right now? And what's on your plate this summer? Maybe you're getting back to going back into the office now, things are getting busier, um, you know, your kids' schedules are busier, whatever it might be. Maybe you're not a great summer runner. Um, this is the first year and hopefully, probably the only year we'll have to train for Boston through the summer. And for many of us, many of our runners that we coach, it's, it's a tough time. It's really, they really struggle in the heat. So look at all of that. Look at your circumstances. Look at your goals. What do you want to get out of this? Look at how you uh, respond to summer training. Maybe you've got a lot of travel now that we're traveling again, maybe you got a lot of travel on your plate and it's going to be hard to fit in your training run. So set goals that are realistic. That's our first tip. Just to add to that, set a goal that brings you joy. If the goal not only should be realistic, and, and we're not saying you shouldn't have goals that make you excited. Uh, we always recommend to our runners to set an A goal, a B goal, and even a C goal. But in setting a goal, set a goal that brings you joy. So if, for example, if your goal is a, a huge PR, that's amazing. Make sure that when setting that goal, it's bringing you a lot of joy and excitement and not stress. And if that goal isn't necessarily the right goal for this time, for this summer, that's okay. Put it on the back burner and figure out, well, what is going to excite me and what is going to bring you, me joy? So the next uh, lesson that we've learned from our Boston Marathon experiences is find the right training plan. There are so many great training plans out there. And there also are a lot of training plans out there for Boston that aren't so great. So basically, there, there really aren't a lot of fancy ways to train for a marathon. It's, it's about building mileage, running the right paces for your abilities, for where your fitness is right now, and peppering in appropriate speed work, peppering in appropriate tempo runs. But really the bread and butter, and we've talked about this a lot, is endurance for any marathon. But particularly for Boston, finding the right training plan means finding a training plan that is going to allow you to get to the start line to run the marathon. What we mean by that is if you are doing a training plan that is too advanced for where your fitness is right now, you're going to get hurt and then you're not going to get to the start line. And that really defeats the purpose of this whole exercise, doesn't it? So when looking at all of the training plans, really try to find something that fits you right now. Perhaps two years ago in 2019, when we were all running marathons, you ran a 312 marathon, but right now maybe you're not in 312 shape 
that's okay. That doesn't mean you won't be someday, but really be realistic with yourself and pick something that is going to get you to the start line, excited, ready to run, not overtrained, not burnt out, and most importantly, not injured. If you have questions about what type of training plan to look for, um, if you're seeing sort of the Hal Higdon training plans, while they're really basic, we, we know that's a trusted source. So if you're someone where you don't want to work with a coach or you don't have a training group that you're working with, then that, that to us is kind of the, the most trusted source of training plans. And of course, there are also training plans on the BAA website. Those are great training plans. The only thing about those training plans is that really look at them carefully because some of them have a lot of, a lot of mileage and a lot of speed. Nothing wrong with that, but if you haven't done either, putting both those together and adding both of those variables at the same time will lead to overtraining and perhaps injury. So really, it's not as much about whether the training plan is good or not. It's whether the training plan is good for you right now. Yeah, and, and in looking at that, you might want to look at, you know, your age is one factor. Um, maybe what worked for you five, 10 years ago may not work now. Uh, your injury threshold, are you someone who just gets injured quickly once you start ramping up the mileage or adding in speed? Those are all factors. And if I can put in a shameless plug for our RFF to BOS training calendar that we have, that we put together based on our experience, our collective knowledge, our um, our own experiences, plus coaching a lot of runners for Boston, we put together a group training calendar that we think will work for um, for most people training for, for Boston and it has some flexibility in it to, to change some of the variables. And um, that program is starting um, on the 20th of June. So if you're listening to this before the 20th of June and want to join us, um, please make sure to go to our website and check out the um, description and there is a registration link on our website. And we are starting to put that program together, the plan together and really in a thoughtful way of um, very specific um, preparing runners. Like, and like you said, Julie, the, the really the most important thing about any train is plan is that it gets you to the start line healthy. And that is our goal. So the third tip that we have um, is focus on one variable you want to change. A lot of people get very gung-ho about their training, especially if you're training for Boston, especially if it's your first time at Boston. But it really, I mean, all of us, as we're getting ready to get train for Boston, we're getting really excited and we're thinking, all right, well, how am I going to tweak my training? Maybe I do want to improve. I want to feel better in the marathon. I want to have a strong race. I want to PR. And we think about all these things that we want to change. Like maybe I'm going to, um, you know, work on strength more and I'm also going to add some speed and I'm going to change my nutrition and, um, you know, a lot of different factors. Really pick one variable and, and focus on that. So that could be, maybe I'm going to really pay more attention to strength this time. And, and that's something that we think as coaches and as runners ourselves, and particular to Boston with the hills um, and, and the timing of the hills, um, that strength, core strength, um, glutes, quad, quad strength, um, hip strength is so important to having a, a strong, healthy marathon. So maybe that's, that's what you want to focus on. So focus on that and really work with a trainer, um, work with local coaches that work with trainers and figure out what you need to do specifically um, to do it right. Um, maybe you want to work on nutrition, same thing, find a dietitian then and really dial in. Don't um, kind of throw everything against the wall and see what sticks, really do it deliberately and pick one thing because if we pick too many variables, that is a lot of um, 
a lot going on and really can end up resulting in um, in overtraining or um, something just not going right before you get to to that start line. Yeah, yeah, and to your point, Lisa, we have a few runners who have reached out to our registered dietitians that we work with, Amy and Melissa. And one of our runners um, met with Melissa recently over Zoom, and she said it was such a great meeting. She also, she had blood work done before she met with Melissa, and she was able right away to tweak some things. And she's really excited about that. And she asked the question, "Why are people using Inside Tracker always?" when you can often get a registered dietitian and at least part of it's covered by insurance. So um, she made a good point. You know, I'm not an expert in Inside Tracker, but it may be worth kind of looking if you if you want to get blood work and kind of see where you have some deficiencies. Um, this is not at all to say Inside Tracker isn't effective, but it might be more cost effective and more specific to use a registered dietitian. You actually may be in a position where that is more cost effective. So it's just something to think about if you are wanting to get some blood work done to explore whether you have, for example, a vitamin D deficiency. So number four in our tip is speed work. So um, figuring out the right kind of speed work. Now this goes back to our previous point about finding the right training plan, but sometimes we tend to do speed work because first of all, it's fun. Um, it's fun to go to a track and run fast. You feel like a little kid. It's really great, especially when you're with other people. And particularly now when so many of us have been running alone all these months to get back on a track and be able to just run with people and just feel really free doing that and running fast. It's a lot of fun. And speed work is actually great. It, it, it definitely um, allows you to work different stimuli. And it's, a, it's an important component of marathon training. And it's one of the many things that you can pepper into your training, for example, that will help you at the end of a race when you're feeling really sluggish. And this is any distance to get that extra kick in. I always talk about uh, one of my running partners, Felix, and he has this amazing kick. And no matter how poorly he feels he's running in a race and he rarely does poorly in races. He has this tremendous kick at the end of his races. And that is from a lot of practice and a lot of speed work he's done over the years where he's been able to develop that stimulus. And of course, that is a great stimulus to develop at the end of a marathon. What is better than running down Boylston Street and being able to kick it in and pass people as you cross the finish line? So there is absolutely nothing wrong with speed work. Speed work is very helpful, but really be purposeful about your speed work and recognize that there's a time for it and timing. So doing 400s, for example, and 200s, that's, those are some speed workouts that are relevant to marathon training to engage different muscles. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, promote different stimuli, but doing that, you know, the last month of marathon training isn't as relevant. So really figuring out when it's important to do sharpening, when it's important to be doing longer intervals, when it's important to be just getting into speed work and doing less speed work so you don't get injured. So it can be really work for you, but speed work can also work against you. So going back to our point earlier, make sure that you're doing the right speed work so that it doesn't lead to injury. Um, speaking of speed work, also hills. Uh, hills are, you know, the Boston course is full of hills and hill repeats are definitely an integral part of many marathon and half marathon training programs, but you want to do just enough. In fact, if you, have, you are someone that has had a history of Achilles injuries, 
then maybe it's not the season for you to do a bunch of hill sprints. And that's okay. You can figure out other ways to be strong for the hills in Boston. And that includes very specific strength training where you're really working on your glutes and your quads. Um, going up and down hills quickly when you have a history of certain types of injuries, even hamstring injuries, may not be the best time to do that. So really think about what your body needs when incorporating hills, knowing that it's beneficial, but only when it's purposeful and only when your body is able to be durable enough to handle that with everything else. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, for us personally, and again, in coaching our runners, the most helpful speed work in a marathon training plan, particularly Boston Marathon training plan, but really any marathon training plan is tempo work and also um, race pace work where um, particularly Boston, the, the tendency and almost every runner we've ever spoken to and every experience we've had is to go out too fast. It's downhill. The adrenaline of being at Boston will carry you away and you'll pay for that later. So dialing in there, your race pace and really getting your body to tune in and your mind to tune into your race pace during training so that when you get to that start line, you are, you're, you automatically go to that race pace and you're not going out faster or you're less likely to go out faster. Those are really important types of, of speed work. And that's what we tend to focus on in our Boston marathon training plan. And um, our fifth tip is um, not only focusing on the speed work that you're doing, but your nutrition plan. And for Boston in particular, this can be he, um, there are some specific considerations. Boston is a later start. And I remember way back when, when Boston started at noon and that was a whole, uh, you know, very similar, but different, different ball game. But now um, starts are as, as early or as late as 10 a.m. And, and there are waves and, and you wake up very early still to get out to the start. That may be a little bit different this year. Um, you may not have as much time in, in Hopkinton before you get started, but um, the, the point is that you're going to be awake and up and waiting around for several hours. And you may be used to getting up and running a race within a couple hours of waking up. And now it's going to be four or five hours before you get out. And um, so practicing that nutrition of what, you know, what works for you um, in the morning prior to a run, it's not necessarily necessary to wake up every run four or five hours before and fuel appropriately, but you may want to do a few practice runs, um, dinner the night before. And again, this goes for any marathon. You start practicing what you're going to have for dinner the night before. You don't want any surprises on race day. You kind of want to know what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Take notes, put notes in your training log of, you know, Hey, I had pizza for dinner last night. Didn't sit so well the next morning. I had pasta that seemed to work well. Um, and then, um, practicing, practicing fueling during the race. And um, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but um, our bodies process fuel differently when we're running at an easy conversational pace. Uh, we feel differently. Like we may be able to go out and do a long 16 mile training run at an easy pace and not feel like we need fuel because our body's not burning glycogen as quickly. But guess what? On race day, you're going to be running a lot faster and your body's going to be burning through fuel faster. And you need to practice fueling at those faster paces. So incorporate that into your, um, you know, if you're doing a long run and it's got some marathon pace miles, fuel during those miles, make sure that it's working for you. Um, make sure that that fuel is keeping, keeps you the steady level of, of energy and also no GI issues. We see that a lot where, um, runners may use a product or a, a nutrition that worked just fine when, um, the weather was cool and they were running an easy pace. And then the weather gets hot or they start running faster and their GI system reacts differently because in those conditions, our GI system, our body is um, diverting its, its energies and its resources and blood flow to, to our vital organs. So our heart, our lungs, um, and it takes away from our GI system. And 
that's harder to process that nutrition then. So when we're running faster, when we're in more adverse conditions, um, so practice in all different types of conditions, practice at different paces, and, and just remember that nutrition is part of your training. And that's particularly at the marathon distance, really just a, another kind of arm in arm discipline to, to, to training your, your, your muscles is training your GI system. So make sure you have that down pat. We talked briefly about, you know, getting in touch with a dietitian if you feel like um, your broader nutrition could use some some fine tuning but even if you're not concerned about that it's really that race day and race nutrition that you want to have down pat all great points and we talk about this so much it's worth repeating and uh, I know so many of so many of our listeners have heard us talk about nutrition and we've had so many dietitians on we will continue to because nutrition is an evolving science it always has been there's so much data out there and it continues to change and we just base this on our own experiences and what we see with our own runners and just being able to practice to determine what works for you is really really critical so another tip that is really critical is your easy pace does not correlate to your race pace so this is particularly important this summer. We just finished talking about how we have to slow our roll in the heat and humidity. But even more than that, Lisa, some of my best training cycles where I had some of my best races, shorter and longer distances, were when we would be running with um, our runners like at a pace that was three, four, sometimes even five minutes slower than our um our training paces. And that was like a really illuminating um, opportunity for us because really, I mean, there were many days where I wasn't able to get in my own run and we would go, for example, to some of our beginner uh, couch to 5k training groups and we would run three, four miles walk run or run slower than what our typical training pace is. And I would worry in the back of my head because I would count those as my easy runs for the day you know, are these quote unquote junk miles that aren't giving me any benefit? Well, it turned out that that definitely expedited my recovery from my harder workouts that week. And I was running even slower. So I took that for me. And I, since then, have really made it a point to run slower on my recovery days. And on I'm very honest about what my conversational pace is. And what that means is that um, I'm happy to run with people, but if they're running at a pace that is what I perceive to be faster than my conversational pace, I do not hesitate to hang back. And I very much believe, at least for me, that's critical to developing my um, my endurance. And it allows me, of course, to recover between workouts and allows me to do all of that fun speed work that I like to do, uh, knock on wood, knock on wood without injury. So just to give some examples, because I, I feel like I need to give numbers and Lisa, feel free to give your own numbers. Um, like when I run a 5k, for example, like a, a good 5k these days for me is a pace anywhere between like on a flat, flat course, you know, 635 to 645 on a hilly course, 645 to seven. And, you know, I will tell you like my easy paces these days generally are between 930 on a really hot day 10. And I'm giving that example because that is a huge range. And that may not work for everyone because we certainly aren't suggesting that people change their gait. And I happen to have a, a very high cadence but I very much believe that by checking my ego at the door and running really easy on my easy days, I'm able to preserve my body. So when I tow the line at a race, I'm able to, to go for it. So 
I share that data with all of you so that you can use that as a reference and recognize that your training paces have nothing to do with how you will perform at a race. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that I think you remember I trained for um, both of my last marathons, the the one that I did in September of last year, and um, I had done Tiberius Marathon in Israel at the beginning of 2020, right before the um, pandemic. And for both of those, my training leading up to them, I had no runs, no running at all that was any faster than nine minute mile. And most of them were in that 930 range. And I remember telling you, like, I don't even know if I can run fast anymore. I just, um, I just, you know, for those two particular marathons, I hadn't had any races leading up to them. I didn't have, I mean, particularly for um, the Notsob or the Lake Latonka marathon, we didn't have any races, you know, it was, we were kind of in lockdown and um, that was a very small, you know, small race and there was nothing leading up to it. So I really, I remember telling you, like, I don't even know if I can run any faster. And I, you know, very bad at doing those type of faster runs on my own. So I was just saying like, I'm just going to run all my runs easy and see what happens. And um, so I was training at an, I would say between a nine and nine forty-five pace generally. And I ran both of those marathons. I ran Tiberius in, oh, was it three? I don't remember what that was, but like th- three teens, three, maybe, or maybe, yeah, three, maybe three nineteen, something like that. Three, I forget, three teens, three fifteen, three. I don't know. And the, the one I did last fall was in three twenty. So those are my marathon times and my training times are uh, much slower. And we see a lot of runners who have slower marathon times and faster training times. And um, it's just, um, there's not a correlation between your slow, easy training, your easy aerobic effort pace and your race pace. There is not a correlation. Um, the, The other way around, yes, if we have a race pace, we can then tell you what your easy runs should maybe, you know, that range that they likely will fall into. Um, but it's impossible to go the other way and say, okay, you run all your training runs at a 930, then your marathon time is going to be a 345. That's impossible to go the other way. And that's why we do time trials. And that's why we do have our runners do 5Ks to see what is their race pace and then come back the other way to figure out their training paces, not the other way around. So very, very important. Um, so sort of related in terms of you know, running easy paces longer, the, the one, people ask us like, what is the one success factor? You know, one factor that determines success at the marathon distance. And what I always say is your endurance and your mileage. Um, and it's gonna vary for different people with different injury thresholds. Some people just cannot run 50, 60, 70 miles a week. Some people can easily handle 70, 80, 90 miles a week. But um, you do need a lot of miles under your belt to have a solid race. So if you're somebody who's just running a 20 mile run on long run on the weekend and you're running a couple of five mile runs during the week, it's gonna be a lot harder to have a really good, feel good, not only feel good, but also recover well from the marathon. Um, but you also wanna make sure um, that you don't have too many junk miles. So you're not, we talked about this already, you know, really be purposeful in your training. And what we've found is, is helpful is to spread the mileage out throughout the week. So instead of trying to do a 22 mile or a 24 mile long run, which is just, just so hard on your body, depend regardless of your fitness or your speed, um, 20 to 22 miles is hard on your body. So spread the miles out throughout the week. Maybe you do an 18 mile run on long run on the weekend, but you're doing a 13 mile run, mid distance run during the middle of the week. And then your other runs are six to eight, maybe nine miles. So spreading the mileage out throughout the week um, for us, we've found is more effective than putting it all in one chunk on the weekend and having your long run. So we have a lot of runners, you know, get very um, focused on, you know, can I do a 22 mile? Long? I want to do a 22 mile long run. I want to do a 23 mile or 21 mile long run. I want to get that. And, and it's, um, 
our, at least my feeling is, is that that's not going to do as much good as maybe adding a little bit of mileage midweek and spreading it out throughout the week. We wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to thank our friends at RNJ Sports for their support. RNJ is our go-to expert on all things running gear related, particularly running shoes. If you've struggled with finding the right shoes, the staff at RNJ can help solve just about any problem or issue. As a small locally owned business, RNJ is heavily involved in and supportive of the local running community. They get runners. They are runners. RNJ has been an enthusiastic supporter of our podcast and our training programs, including our Montgomery County Public Schools program. We are so appreciative of their support. Check them out online at rnj, that's rnjsports.com. When you mentioned that 13-mile run in the middle of the week, that it's also about time on your feet. So there's a difference between a runner who typically runs their training pace in um, eight to 8.30 minute miles, doing a 13 mile run in the middle of the week while time consuming is a lot different than a runner who runs 11 minute miles. So it's also about time on your feet. So we really wouldn't recommend for someone who's, it's going to take them a significantly long period of time, especially on a work day to run 13 miles. But more of the the point of it is saying having a midweek medium run is a really good way to spread out the mileage rather than lumping it all on the weekend. Um, to emphasize your point, Lisa. So the next tip that we have is, uh, and we alluded to this earlier when we talked about hills, uh, for Boston specifically, as everyone knows, it's not only famous for the hills uh, in um, surrounding Heartbreak Hill, of course, but in Newton, but also the fact that it's a gradual downhill for the first half of the race. And it feels really good. I mean, you just feel like you get going with the adrenaline and you start and with the crowds and with everything like the scenery and the spirit of the race, you can't help but just want to fly when you start the Boston Marathon. So we'll talk more about this as we delve more into the Boston race execution. But really um, taking that time in your training to find some routes that have downhill. And when you go downhill, thinking about your form, you know, you want to lean only slightly into the hill. You don't want to break backwards, of course. You want to make sure to engage your glutes and, and when running to keep your cadence high. And you want to make sure that you're sort of, how do, how do I explain it? Like floating almost. You don't want to pound your quads into the hill. You, you want to slightly lean in and feel light on your feet and not change your form too much, but use the advantage of the hill to take, just take that. I don't know if I'm describing this right. Relaxing. You want to relax. Yes. The hill. Thank you. you want it because I'm if like, you are right. If you are, um, using too much energy in your month through your muscles, um, they will feel it later. And that is, if you talk to people who've run the Boston marathon, they will tell you, oh my gosh, you know, by halfway through the race, my quads were killing me. Or, you know, I, I, I totally thought I was begging for an uphill because it will. Um, so it's something that you do have to um, take into account. And again, we talked about this before. You don't need to overdo the hills. You don't need to overdo the downhill training, but don't overlook it because that is uh, so many people focus on the uphill part of any race, but particularly Boston thinking about Heartbreak Hill. And um, they go out and they run a lot of hills because they think that's going to make them stronger. Um, and, and it's not really those uphills, but it's getting to that section in the race that at mile 16, 17, where your muscles are not torn up from the first half of the race. And so practicing um, good form, and you can look up online um, or on YouTube, there are plenty of videos um, that, that kind of review down. <laughs> plenty <form>. of videos. <laughs> 
better better than my description for sure. I was trying to think <laughs> of the is, right words, but it's, it's relaxing, hard. relaxing yeah. and and like you said, kind of that slight forward, maintaining that slight forward lean from the ankles, not from the hips, high cadence, um, relaxed and and not that, you know, not that tendency to put on put on the brakes. So that is um and then that, that just, is definitely important. And then with respect to hills, strength training is really instrumental because if you're doing very uh, race-specific strength training, then you're working already things like uh, lunges and wall sits where you're kind of working at the same time, your glutes, you're also working your quads and bridges. We, we love bridges because that is a very glute specific exercise. But if your glutes are strong, ideally, you're also running using your glutes. And so by doing so, ideally, you're not putting all of all of your energy into your quads where suddenly once you're in the second half of the race, you realize that your quads are just completely shredded. So doing specific strength training for your quads, your core, your glutes, as we mentioned earlier, is really going to help you with that downhill. And this also has to do with um, race execution. Obviously, if you are flying the first half of the race, overstriding, getting really excited, that is definitely going to affect how your quads feel during the second half of the race. And there's no better feeling than a perfect race execution at Boston because it's really, really fun to be able to take advantage of the finally flatter parts of Boston at the end of the race. And if you do it right and you take advantage of that, it can be a really great race. Yeah, I think that's an important point too, is that pacing. And that's what we talked about before is making sure you're dialing in your pacing. Um, So our next tip uh, is that recognizing the variables outside of your running can impact your training and adjust. Don't be afraid to adjust your goals accordingly. We all have things that come up during training. Training is a long three, four months. Things happen, work changes, work demands, family, you know, family demands, things happen, stress happens. And if that happens, or, you know, you are just feeling beat up or you have an injury that pops up, it's okay to change those goals along the way and, and be kind to yourself and be flexible yourself. And then ask yourself, okay, what do I need to do now to kind of refocus, um, and, and move towards, towards my new goal. There's nothing wrong with deciding instead of trying to go for a PR or a certain time that you just want to finish the race and you want to enjoy it and you want to get to the start line healthy. So just recognize, I think a lot of us underestimate the effect that stuff that's going on in our lives has on our training. And I think it's really important to take a look at that throughout training and realize that it might change as well and not be afraid to change your goals for that race. Yeah, I have one anecdote from that and it was uh, 2017 Boston. It was six weeks after uh, my son's bar mitzvah. And and that took a lot out of me just because, um, you know, I had never done anything like that before. So I, it it just was stressful. I mean, it was a good stress, but it took a lot of time um, and a lot of energy off my plate. And, you know, I also really wanted to focus any extra energy I had on my family and of course, um, coaching our clients. And I just didn't really feel like I had the mental and physical energy to focus on my own training. So I made a commitment early in my training for that Boston in January when I started that I was just going to train to finish the race that season and not worry about trying to achieve a particular time. And you know what? It ended up being such a fun race. I had very low expectations, but I knew I was prepared enough to run it and finish. I had a great race and I also had a great time. Um, like meaning like it was a fun time and and my race time wasn't bad either. I I don't remember it being anything remarkable. I can't remember what it is, 
Like just, that like just goes to the point that we're never going to remember yes. our race times. We're going to remember the experience. So at the end of the day, focus exactly. on having a good experience and, and you're going to remember being there. So focus on getting to the start line healthy. That's, that's super important. And related to that, which I'm going to go into our next tip, sleep, sleep is critical. And um, not only, you know, we talk a lot about it the week before, um, the week before the race and leading into the race, but the entire cycle. I mean, I will tell you, I've not been getting the greatest sleep lately. I've been, you know, both of us, we were like both burning the midnight oil. Um, we we're lucky enough to have a lot of runners that started, uh, training plans and we started coaching them in June. And so we've been crazy busy with, between our other you know, work and kids and end of the school year. And, um, and we've both been, I think, skimping on sleep and, and I feel it at the beginning of a training cycle. So sleep is really critical. If we talked about you know, uh, looking at focusing on certain um, variables, uh, that's a big one. Like if you're looking for something to focus on and try to improve your training and your running this cycle, so sleep is underrated. And I would highly, highly recommend that. Yeah. Thanks. Last night, actually, I was sent you an email about something and you were, and I was like, I think I need to go to bed and you, and then I responded to something to again right after. And you told me to go to bed and I did, I listened to you. So thank you. I yeah, but that was I still like 1130 at night, right? Like we both didn't get to bed till like 12 midnight and it's, it's, yeah, we're, we're yes, I, I'm but making listen, that my goal to work on that. I just can't get to it. It's so, and we get that, like, you know, the first thing to go when you're a busy parent runner, you've got, you know, work, you've got everything going on. The first thing to go is, all right, I'll just stay up a little later to get this done. And, you know, it's and the first exactly. thing to go is sleep. And, and even, you know, so anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's easier said than done, but I think that the benefits, uh, are really, are really important to training and just also feeling mentally healthy. Yeah. I mean, look at our sleep expert who was on a few months ago and all of the benefits of sleep that she pointed out. But Lisa, I was just going to say, I actually slept in a little bit this morning and I paid for it because remember, we just said in some of our previous tips with this heat and humidity, you really need to get up early to run. So I started my run this morning at seven, seven forty-five, eight at eight o'clock. And yeah, it was pretty brutal by then, but it was worth getting a little more sleep. So it is. And you know what, if you have a trade-off too, between shortening your run or making an easier run, if you were going to do speed work, you know, if you've got to take that choice or even taking a day off, we have some runners who will say, like, I was just so tired. I slept in this morning. And we say, you know what? Don't run today. Just take that run off your calendar. Like, it's much better. The sleep that you got is much better um, training and much better to your to your fitness than getting in that run. So, yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we're going to stop here. And we have several more tips. And we'll save those for part two of this uh, two-part episode now because we we really don't want to skip over these tips, but we want to make sure that these are um, definitely uh, not buried. So we'll definitely save these for a, a second part of this episode on the lessons we've learned from running our collective Boston Marathon. So Lisa, I hope that you have a great week and uh, happy official start of summer. Kids are getting out of school and Summer's, summer's coming. So happy official start of summer. Summer weather's here and, um, and, and back to some normalcy too, which is kind of fun. Yes. I'm super excited for this summer. So uh, Lisa, have a great week and uh, we will definitely continue this next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.